Hello, my name is Jordan Preston. This is Back of the Class Podcast. And if A, the protagonist of the Disney cartoon classic's name is Phineas, and B, Phineas is a name of Hebrew origin, then C, Phineas Flynn is a fellow Jew. Excuse me, class. <laughs> class. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what the song sounds like. Joining me at the back of the class today is the one, the only, Mans. Mans, how have you been? How has life been treating you? Hi, I'm good. Life is, well, it's good. Um, that sounds convincing. How are you? <laughs> you know, life has been a little all over the place, but we are taking it like a champ. I feel like that's that's with everyone right now, you know? Well, as long as the fame doesn't get to you, then. Well, I'm not sure I've considered this fame yet. <laughs> you and I were in philosophy together. Yes. Grade 12 year. Mm-hmm. So I know the answer to this question, but why don't you just share for the listeners at home, where did you sit in the class? Wait, you do know the answer? I don't even know if I know the answer. I know the answer based on philosophy. What other classes did we have together? Grade 11 AP English. Okay. So from my understanding, I'd say you're pretty back of the class. You can, I'm sure that if you are in a class with no friends, you'd probably be middle. Yeah, I'm kind of just, I feel like it's like the mediocre. I feel like the first two years of high school was just different than the last two years. And the first two years, I was very much like, I will just go wherever there's friends. And I was just like so desperate to like be friends with people that I just like find whoever I knew and just like sat with them. But then later on, it was where I wanted and it was either like middle or back or like I had more friends. So I kind of had more choice. It was the world is my oyster. Not to brag. I had like three friends opposed to two, but still. But we were a grade three. So what was your experience with philosophy? You took philosophy also grade 11. We just weren't in the same class. So what was your experience? I'd like to know starting from the beginning. Lay it all out. Starting from the very beginning. I knew about philosophy from grade eight, actually. We want to go that far back because my older brother took it and he absolutely loved it. And I'm very similar to him. And like he made a lot of friends in that class and he would just go on about uh, Mr. Man, our favorite teacher, and about mm-hmm. how funny he was. Mr. Man, he shall not be named Mr. Man. Yeah. Which we've just named exactly. him now, Mr. Man. Then even uh, grade 10, um, a family friend of mine was his student teacher and he... Like I knew, I think I, I think he knew who I was and I knew who he was. So it was like, it was like a fact from when I got into high school that like I was just going to take philosophy. But grade 11 and grade 12 was really different. And I don't know if it was because I got more comfortable being in the class and talking and saying just like weird, bizarre things in out loud to people that I didn't, wasn't like, I wasn't friends with all of them, obviously. But I definitely enjoyed grade 12 more because I had more friends and I was more outgoing. In grade 11, I kind of just like quietly sat there and was like, yes, Socrates sucks or something, you know? I was always the loud outburst starting from grade 11. You're too, you're way more extroverted than I am. Does speaking when no one asks you to speak make you extroverted or just make you like self-centered because I don't like hanging out with a big group of people for long periods of time like that exhausts me like I didn't like being around people in the class I just like saying whatever was on my mind it was the only class where I was allowed to do that that's true I would have been much happier if it was like the five of us on the couch in the back and just Mr. Man you know that would be a very bizarre situation I'd love that Today, as you can tell from my apparel and I can tell from your apparel, I am wearing my Play-Doh Cave Survivor shirt. I will post a picture of it on Instagram when this episode is released. And you are wearing your Socrate sweater. Socrate sweater. It's from the store Zara. 
I got it on sale for $10 um, for Black Friday. And it says, all I know is that I know nothing. Socrates. We're going to be discussing Plato's allegory of the cave. Woo. Socrates. No, not Socrates. It's Plato. Okay. It's like, they're kind of like the same person, but like. So you, you think that they're the same person. They're not the same person. Plato was taught by Socrates, which is also Socrates for anyone who's confused. <laughs> Plato, like you said, was taught by Socrates. And Plato also went on to teach Aristotle, a.k.a. Aristotle. Who taught Alexander the Great. Who did teach Alexander the Great. Where did you learn that one? Um, The first episode of Bot Cop. Oh, that's so sweet. I love my fans. So an allegory is an artistic piece of work that people interpret to have hidden meanings. These pieces can be presented as a story, a poem, a picture, or really any other creative art form. And Plato here uses it as a story, kind of like a script. Plato, like we just described, liked to write out script-esque arguments. And he did a lot of them through Socrates' perspective after Socrates was killed. Because Socrates, as we all know, was the gem of the guy that was like, speak your truth. And they were like, no. And he was like, fuck. And then they killed him. Yeah. Oh, I have to. Oh, I have to. Okay. So on that note, I happen to be... ADHD, ADHD, No, it's not ADHD. It's completely on topic. I have to share with you this meme that BotCop tweeted today. Ooh, BotCop. I came across it. Well, BotCop Twitter, whoever runs that. (laughs) Anonymous. I wonder who. I don't know. Um, (laughs) Came across it literally this morning as I was prepping for this episode. It says... Plato writing about winning arguments against his own fictional characters. And then it's the picture of Homer Simpson saying, everyone is stupid except me. (laughs) Literally. So Plato created the Academy, which was the first school for higher learning in the Western hemisphere, Western world, Western areas. No, hemisphere is probably geography. So Western world, the West world. Well, you know, you're not good at geography. Yeah, I took applied. (laughs) I didn't do so well on that one either. So he, he's literally, he created university-esque slash also he created high school because they didn't, they only had one age group of schooling. Yeah. He basically really created just higher learning. Oh, you want, do you want more? Here's the option. That's kind of him. That's nice of him to do. If you want to learn more, come on over down to the Academy, which by the way, great name. It is. Did you know that Plato wasn't his real name? Really? What was it? Plato Rira? No, it was Platifer. Extremely close to Aristotle. <laughs> Platifer? Like Jennifer, but Plato? I got it. Thank you. <laughs> I'm so funny. His real name was Aris- Aristotles. Oh, yeah. Or Aristocles. I don't know if it's a S or a K, but it's a C. Aristotles, I'm assuming, which is very close to Aristotle. His stage name was Plato? His stage name was the toy. Exactly. <laughs> I've been, this is the episode that I'm most excited for because I don't know why I love Allegory of the Cave so much. Honestly, me too. It was probably my favorite one. For me, it just represents my introduction to philosophy, even though it probably happened like after a month of learning, it was kind of still that moment that took me in. Yeah, I think it was the first, personally for me, like I think it was the first moment where I read something in philosophy and I was like, whoa, and it like actually like changed my opinion but also got me to think in a different sort of way than I had been taught previously I think I know just after you said this why I love it so much but I'm not going to share until after we're done reading it okay but don't forget because I want to know I won't forget so also yes this is the most I think this is probably the most referred to and most popular philosophy philosophic Uh English philosophic reading by Plato that people reference like whenever I talk about like learning about Republic or learning about Plato. People always reference Allegory of the Cave. 
because it's iconic it kind of is it deserves it it's not over hyped it's it is not over hyped at all it is just as hyped as it needs to be so how we're gonna do this is we're gonna read through it we're gonna stop whenever we want to stop kind of discuss and because it's a script and there's two separate characters plato wrote it from socrates and this guy named Gl- glau glaucon glau chester sauce no i used to call him glaucester <laughs> no glaucon so glaucester and socrates uh, not only will i be playing the starring role of glaucester sauce but i will also be playing the scene setter because in this he sets the scene before every script reading I will be setting the scene in a British accent. I can't wait. And now, introducing the star voice of the evening, the one, the only, the man, the myth, the legend, the girl who impersonates Socrates on her spare time just for fun, Karen Adelist, take it away. Ahem. The cave. Imagine this. People live under the earth in a cave-like dwelling. Stretching a long way up toward the daylight is its entrance, toward which the entire cave is gathered. The people have been in this dwelling since childhood, shackled by the legs and neck. But because they are shackled, they are unable to turn their heads around. Thus, they stay in the same place, so that there is only one thing for them to look at. Whatever they encounter in front of their faces. Story starts off. Prisoners who've been kept in a dark cave, chained up since birth. Their backs always facing the light, like the little entrance to the cave, the little tiny, little tiny circle, having no knowledge of the world outside. The fire is behind them, and there is a war between the fire and the prisoners. I don't know what accent that is. That was worse. Australian. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Let me do it again. Okay, wait, hold on. A fire is behind them. I'm Australian. I've accepted it. And there is a war between the fire and the prisoners. Some light, of course, is allowed them. Namely from a fire that casts its glow toward them from behind them, being above and at some distance. Between the fire and those who are shackled behind their backs, there runs a walkway at a certain height. Imagine that a low wall has been built the length of the walkway, like the low curtain that puppeteers put up, over which they show their puppets. Okay, this I don't understand, and I never thought twice about it until now. But I'm just trying to think about this like the actual science of shadows. And reflection. And I know we haven't gotten there yet, but like this this description of where the wall and the fire is makes no sense for the next part. So I'll revisit it, but like we're gonna come this doesn't make any sense for how shadows work. The images carried before the fire. So now imagine that all along this low wall, people are carrying all sorts of things that reach up higher than the wall. Statues and other carvings made of stone or wood and many other artifacts that people have made. As you would expect, some are talking to each other as they walk along, and some are silent. This is an unusual picture that you are presenting here, and these are unusual prisoners. They are very much like us humans, I, Socrates, responded. Okay, so Socrates, he's like, people are going to be passing by the opening of the cave outside, holding objects and animals, And with only the little firelight shining from behind them, the prisoners had only ever been accustomed to seeing the shadow of these people and the objects on the cave wall. But here's my thing. A wall behind the prisoners and then the fire behind that wall. Shouldn't the fire have to be in between the prisoners and a wall? But also, how is there a wall? Because then the objects aren't seen. Like, why is it not just cave? 
Prisoners staring at the wall of the cave with their back turned to the opening. Fire behind the prisoners, opening. What is with this middleman wall? I, I, I don't know the logistics of it, but I watched a cartoon thing and it made sense. Yeah, but the, I know what cartoon that you're talking about. There is no middle wall. It's just the the wall in front of them, which is the cave wall. Yeah. So I don't understand why he brings up this middle wall. He's trying to be all architectural. Yeah, he ain't an architect. But I think we could just ignore that and pretend like it's the wall in front of us. I think maybe, I may be incorrect. I'm just guessing. But it could be that the wall signifies the one side where the other people are on and then like the, the, the prisoners i get the signification but then it gets lost in the actual science because then later on he yeah. goes back to say like the only shadows they see are in front of them so i was like what is this then what what is the purpose of this wall behind them i think it means that they like even if they turn around it just it's a wall but then the guy does turn, okay so let's well, instead of getting ahead because that's my fault but like it just it's <laughs> it's a little astray for him to add this middle wall so for the sake of the argument let's just picture a fire behind the people the wall in front of them yeah so basically they're they're like trapped and all they can see is in front of them and in front of them they see the shadows of objects that people are carrying because of the fire so the fire gives off the impression that these are moving shadows exact mungo what the prisoners see and hear what do you think from the beginning people like this have never managed whether on their own or with the help by others to see anything besides the shadows that are continually projected on the wall opposite them by the glow of the fire how could it be otherwise since they are forced to keep their heads immobile for their entire lives and what do they see of the things that are being carried along behind them do they not see simply these shadows certainly now he's just saying hey you agree that all these trapped people have only ever seen shadows, right? And Gloucester Sauce is just being a good yes man and saying, yeah, yes man. Jim Carrey could never. Could absolutely never. Now, if they were able to say something about what they saw and talk it over, do you not think that they would regard that which they saw on the wall as beings? They would have to. So he suggests that these prisoners could speak, which I personally find issue with. Yeah. Um, and that they therefore adapt names and classifications for the shadowed images on the wall. How do they speak, though? Because no one taught them that speaking is an option. And there's also no demand for communication. So they wouldn't have figured out their own language either. Like if they were if they were a new species and put onto an island, they would figure out how to communicate because there would be a, a need for survival. He doesn't tell us how these people survive. They're getting fed clearly by someone, but they just have to sit there. There's no need for communicating. I don't understand how they speak, but we're just gonna do the thing in theater where you pretend like everything's normal when people break out into song and you just go with it. I think you're too logical for Plato. I might be a little too logical for Plato. I just like finding the fault in the very good arguments. Yeah, but like, how do they speak? They don't, they can't speak, man. But that's not the point. It's just, it's- It's not the point. That's true. It's theoretical. It's very theoretical. So theoretically, everyone can speak some language. So they would have to, says Gloucester Sauce. And now what if this person also had an echo reverberating off the wall in front of them, the one that they always and only look at? Whenever one of those people walking behind those in chains and carrying the things would make a sound, do you think the prisoners would imagine that the speaker were anyone other than the shadow passing in front of them? Nothing else by Zeus. So he's saying that the prisoners would think 
but the shadows on the wall are the ones talking or making the sounds. Which, by the way, he literally says the wall in front of them, which is the only one they always look at. What about the middle wall? We're forgetting about the middle wall. We're forgetting that they that they can speak and that there's a middle wall. But it's fine, whatever. He says, prisoners, they think that the shadows are the ones talking. Yeah. Nothing else. Bye, Zeus. Um, also, Zeus is God, I think. It's like, ah, thank God. Or Yeah, by Zeus is like, oh, Jesus, or Holy Mother Mary, or something. I don't know. All in all, I responded, those who were chained would consider nothing besides the shadows of the artifacts as the unhidden. That would absolutely have to be. These are just very wordy sentences. Oh, extremely wordy. So just like you said before, prisoners wouldn't look at the shadows and wonder what real physical thing is causing them, because to them, the shadow on its own is the real physical thing. There's nothing to wonder about. Mm, They accepted that as their reality. They accepted that as their reality. A prisoner gets free. So now I replied, watch the process whereby the prisoners are set free from their chains, and along with that, cured of their lack of insight, and likewise consider what kind of lack of insight must be if the following were to happen to those who were chained. So at this point in the story, one of the prisoners is unchained and set free. I don't like how he uses the plural in this sentence, because... We go on in story and he's clearly talking about one individual. Yes, I remember being really confused by that. So he's confusing people because he's like, watch as the prisoners are set free, but he's not setting free prisoners. He's setting free one prisoner. And even the next sentence, he says, whenever any of them are unchained, but he's talking about one. So just for everyone listening, he's talking about one guy, just one. He gets a little confusing, walks back to the fire. Actually, you know what I think it is? Sorry, I think it's that he's saying prisoners as if it could be any of them. It doesn't have to be a specific one, but... Yes, but it just still can be confusing. Yeah. Walks back to the fire. Whenever any of them was unchained and was forced to stand up suddenly, to turn around, to walk, and to look up toward the light, in each case the person would be able to do this only with pain, and because of the flickering brightness, would be unable to look at those things whose shadows he previously saw. So the unchained prisoner is looking towards the opening of the cave and even just like the fire that was behind him because he never liked seeing that directly. And it's painful, you know, because the light, it's hard to make out what's going on in there. But he's he's looking at the fire right now because he never actually seen the fire that was behind him. He felt the heat and now he's like, oh, it's a thing. It's bright. It's scary. What's going on? is questioned about the objects. If all this were to happen to the prisoner, what do you think he would say if someone were to inform him that what he saw before were mere triflings, but that now he was much nearer to beings, and that as a consequence of now being turned towards what is more in being, he also saw more correctly? The answer he gives. And if someone were to then show him any of the things that were passing by and forced him to answer the question about what it was, don't you think he would be at wit's end and in addition would consider that what he previously saw with his own eyes was more unhidden than what was now being shown to him by someone else? Yes, absolutely. So now we get to the part where he's like, it's basically if someone were to say, hey dude, you've been played, how do you think he'd respond? Like... If someone was like, look over there at the opening of the cave, those are people, shadows are not people, people, not people, people, not people. And he's just like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah, like your whole life is a lie. Yeah. So Socrates is asking, Gloucester sauce, he's like, 
Do you think that he might be just a tad scared and confused? Am I wrong in, do you think, maybe? And then Gloucester's like, oh my God, thanks for asking me for my opinion. I do think that. (laughs) He was so grateful that he asked him. So grateful. Yes, man. Very big yes, man. He probably says yes more times than Jim Carrey says yes in Yes Man. He's the biggest yes man I've ever. He invented yes man. That's. I think so. That is merchandise right there. It's a picture of Gloucester sauce. And then in a text bubble, it says, I invented the yes man. <laughs> I will buy a hundred, please. Okay. I'm really looking forward to this. I'll make it work. I'll design it. Looking at the firelight itself. And if someone even forced him to look into the glare of the fire, would his eyes not hurt him? And would he not then turn away and flee back to that which he is capable of looking at? And would he not decide that what he could see before without any help was in fact clearer than what was now being shown to him? Precisely. So now he's saying that this free man might instinctively want to return to looking at the shadows because he knows how to do it and understanding it is less difficult and less painful. Like he'd turn to back to a state of ignorance. He'd prefer that because that's what he knows and what he knew to be true his whole life. Yeah. So let me move on to... Out of the cave into daylight. Now, however, if someone, using force, were to pull him away from there and to drag him up the cave's rough and steep ascent and not to let go of him until he had dragged him out into the light of the sun. Pain, rage, blindness! Would not the one who had been dragged like this feel, in the process, pain and rage? And when he got into the sunlight, wouldn't his eyes be filled with the glare? And wouldn't he thus be unable to see any of the things that are now revealed to him as the unhidden? He would not be able to do that at all, at least not right away. So, this man, this poor non-shackled man, this poor no longer I feel like we should name him. oppressed man. We should name him Jerry. 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 Jerry is our freed prisoner. <laughs> it's just much easier to go about now with the name Jerry. So Jerry has now been forced against his will, might I add, into the outside world. And Jerry steps out into the sunlight and it hurts his gosh darn eyes because it appears incomprehensibly bright and he hasn't adjusted to it yet. Yeah. And basically the way I remember being explained was like, you know, when you're watching TV in the dark and then your sibling just like comes on and turns on the light and you're like, ah, my eyes, basically that, but like a million times worse. You look like the scary, like, what's it like my precious? You're like, "Eh," like, you know? Yeah, literally. That was that. That was Jerry. Yeah. Getting used to the light. It would obviously take some getting accustomed, I think. If it should be a matter of taking into one's eyes that which is up there outside the cave in the light of the sun. So as time progresses, he'll eventually get used to it and he'll see what's around him. Shadows and reflections. That's my best accent so far. That really was. Shadows and reflections. And in this process of acclimatization, he would first and most easily be able to look at one, shadows, and after that, two, the images of people and the rest of things as they are reflected in water. So his eyes adjust to the outside light, so he starts to see real-life objects and even his own reflection, looking at things directly. That was also a pretty good one. I'm getting into it. (laughs) Later, however, he would be able to view the things themselves. But within the range of such things, he might well contemplate what there is in the heavenly dome more easily during the night, by looking at the light of the stars and the moon more easily, that is to say, than looking at the sun and its glare during the day. 
Certainly. So they're hinting at the sun. It's a little bit of sun foreshadowing. He's not ready to look at the sun yet. We'll tell you all about the sun in a little bit. But in the time being, he's just going to look at the moon because it's like a low-key version of the sun. Um, it's like a gateway sun. A ga- gateway sun? Yeah, it's like a gateway sun. <laughs> Looking at the sun itself. But I think that finally he would be in the condition to look at the sun itself, not just at its reflection, whether in water or wherever else it might appear, but at the sun itself, as it is in and of itself, and in the place proper to it, and to contemplate of what sort it is. It would necessarily happen this way, says Gloucester Sauce. Okay, by the way, ow, I don't know if they invented sunglasses yet, but like, Staring directly at the sun doesn't sound like a fun time. Especially if you've never seen the sun in your entire life. Can you imagine your eyes are- You are hurting your retinas. But anyways, he's saying, lastly, the most stressed upon acclimation would be Jerry learning how to stare directly at the burning hot sun with absolutely no problem. Because the sun here is a pretty, pretty big deal. And now we will tell you Why? Thoughts about the sun, its nature, and its functions. By this time, he would also be able to gather the following about the sun. 1. That it is that which grants both the seasons and the years. 2. It is that which governs whatever there is in the now visible region of sunlight. And 3. That it is also the cause of all those things that the people dwelling in the cave have before their eyes in some way or other. It is obvious that he would get to these things, the sun and whatever stands in its light, after he had gone out beyond those previous things, the merely reflections and shadows. So the sun's light is, in this allegory, the ultimate source of everything Jerry knows to be true. In comparison, just drawing it back to Descartes and his meditations, which we covered in episode three, the sun here represents that one basic principle foundation that Descartes was searching for all that time, that one founding truth, that is the sun. That's what Plato has made the sun in this allegory for Jerry. It is Jerry's pivotal founding truth. Yeah, and also a connection to Descartes was his whole, you know, in meditations where he goes, um, you can't you can't trust any of your senses because your senses deceive you. That's basically what Jerry had to deal with because being in the cave, his senses of seeing and, and hearing deceived him because that was not reality. Mm-hmm. There we go. That is some text to real world comparison. Or text to text. Well, we're pretending like this is real world right now. We're in the moment. It's method acting. Oh, sorry. My mistake. So text to real world connection, because honestly, looking back at that episode, like I was one of those people that was like, I don't fully understand. I understand theoretically how your senses can fail you, but I couldn't come up with an actual practical way in which they would. But here we have it. Here's the practical way. If you're ever held hostage from birth, your senses may have been failing you. <laughs> Most likely. <laughs> Most likely. So we move on after, you know, he's able to look at his founding truth, the sun. Thoughts about the cave. And then what? If he again recalled his first dwelling, and the knowing that passes as the norm there, and the people with whom he once was chained, don't you think he would consider himself lucky because of the transformation that had happened, and by contrast feel sorry for them? Very much so. So it's like, wouldn't he feel bad for them because he knows the truth and they're stuck in this alternate reality that doesn't exist because he, the idea that that Plato is getting across as in Socrates is saying, 
is he must feel terrible. But really, it's like, do you think he must feel terrible? And Gloucestershire Sauce is like, yes, man. <laughs> yeah. Um. Just real quick, if I can, um, just something that didn't make sense to me until like someone had explained it to me. But it kind of sounds weird how they converse because it's very much. I'm not sure if this much in this reading, but the way that Socrates talks is he kind of like questions people but it sounds like he's being sarcastic which he not really is but that's called the socratic method where it's like you don't make someone feel dumb you just ask them questions to prompt them to think which is kind of exactly what our teacher did yes man yes man the return to blindness and now i responded consider this if this person who had gotten out of the cave were to go back down again and sit in the same place as before would he not find in that case, coming suddenly out of the sunlight, that his eyes were filled with darkness? Yes, very much so. So Jerry goes back to the cave to liberate the others, and classic, uh, everyone could have guessed it, it's hard for him to see, because he got so used to the light outside, and now he's suddenly in the dark, and poor little Jerry doesn't have eyes that adjust very well. So he's probably, this is my image, he's probably like bumping into things, and I just pictured like a really loud ruckus happening. And then the, the prisoners who were like staring at the wall were like, what the fuck is going on behind us? <laughs> like when you come home and you're like totally drunk and you're like trying to be quiet and then you end up being super loud. But also like the lights are off because it's that late. And I just hear Jerry like, sorry, ouch. Like, oh, that chair wasn't there before. Like, <laughs> my bad, man. My bad. <laughs> my bad. <laughs> Pretend I'm not even here. Just I'll, I'll see you in the morning, guys. Like, that's what I picture for Jerry. The debate with the other prisoners. Now, if once again, along with those who had remained shackled there, a freed person had to engage in the business of asserting and maintaining opinions about the shadows, while his eyes are still weak and before they have readjusted, would he not then be exposed to ridicule down there? And would they not let him know that he had gone up, but only in order to come back down into the cave with his eyes ruined? And thus, it certainly does not pay to go up. Jerry finally reaches the trap, people after bumping into chairs and tables. And he tries to offer his newfound knowledge to those who are unknowingly suffering. And he will be greeted as if he were blind because it'd be difficult for Jerry to, one, readjust his eyes in the dark, combined with the fact that he's now basically spewing nonsense about how everything that these people thought was true is fake. So it's not surprising that the prisoners would just immediately call him stupid or crazy and would resist any attempt at freeing them. Even to the point where it says they make the point of like, dude, you can't even see in here. Going outside did that to you. I'd like to continue to be able to see and keep my marbles. No thanks. True. And the final outcome. And if they can get hold of this person who takes it in hand to free them from their chains and to lead them up, and if they could kill him, Will they not actually kill him? They certainly will. So they're so stuck in their beliefs that Socrates says, if anyone tried to free these people, R.I.P. Because they will kill you for doing so. Or really, Socrates says, don't you think, Gloucester, that they would kill anyone who tried to free them? Gloucester came up with it himself. Socrates did not help him. Gloucester's like, I'm the smartest person in the world. Yes, man. Honestly, which is literally what our teacher would make us do in philosophy. Mm -hmm. Mr. Man. He, yeah, Mr. Man just like question us and then make us feel like we were smart. But he was really just like leading us to say what he wanted us to say. So we're not learning from him. Technically, we're learning from our own recognition of what was wrong. Exact Amongo. So that is the full reading of Allegory of the Cave. 
So just to kind of go over the actual allegory part, the shadows of objects represent our vague and perfected false realities. The prisoners represent common people of society. And the allegory in, in its whole, in its entirety, represents how most of us are stuck in this cave and that we're reluctant to see past our opinions and beliefs. And that journeying out of the cave and seeing the truth, which takes patience and time, is the key to attaining real knowledge. So the whole thing with the prisoners wanting to stay in the cave and us wanting to stay in our caves is a very easy concept to understand when you look back at episode four on Pierce's fixation of belief, where we discuss how most people in society are comfortable sitting in ignorance. If not only that, they're also aggressive towards people who try to change it. So it, it's all feeding in the Descartes meditations, the, the fixation of belief, allegory of the cave kind of covers it all in the sense of how people react to truth and false knowledge. Here's my thing. This is my new segment on back of the class. Maybe I'll do a little jingle for it. It's called, okay, here's my thing because. <laughs> wow. That's such a creative title. How'd you come up with that? Apparently I say it a lot and I didn't know this. You do say it a lot. Apparently everyone knows this and I didn't. But apparently, and I'll say apparently one more time, apparently, I say, okay, here's my thing. Okay, so here's my thing. What's your thing, girl? Those people chained up, not Jerry, all the other ones. We're going to call them Luannas. All the Luannas. Luannas. You don't even question it. Okay. The Luannas, they're chained. And do they not know that they're chained up? And this, these are all rhetorical questions. Don't feel need to, don't feel free to, I mean, you can answer it, but it's fine. So we're just like assuming that they don't know that they're chained up, I guess. So then Jerry is unchained and he doesn't seem to put up a fight when he's set free. He's only, the only time where he's like reluctant and where they have to use force is bringing him outside the cave. But in terms of unchaining him, he just goes with the flow. He seems, why is it that when, when Jerry comes back, and he's like, I'm going to unchain you guys. All of them start going crazy. Now with that question, I provide an answer. Could it be said that intellectuals must subtly liberate the people that they pity, the people inside the cave, the Luanas, almost like manipulation? Because in this sense, it's almost like Plato could have written this allegory targeted at other Jerry's, at other intellectuals, so that he can coach them into how to liberate the public. Now I go on. This is where it gets really interesting. The allegory is obviously written from the perspective of Socrates, who uses this analogy to describe what it's like being a philosopher um, that so heavily wants to educate the public. Socrates in this reading is talking to a young person who very clearly agrees and validates the opinions. And then Socrates says to the kid, hey, guess what? That was actually a metaphor and you agree with me. Ha 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 ha. Now you're liberated. But what's interesting is that Plato who was one of Socrates' students, could be seen from this perspective as Gloucester. He could be seen as Jerry. He must have been in a cave at one point, and Socrates may have very well been his liberator. But then it gets even weirder because Plato's like, guys, we might have to subtly liberate people. We can't just like yell at them that everything they know is wrong. But we all know that Socrates was infamously known for being the, the depiction of a philosophical heckler. He would never be subtle. So it's almost like Plato is writing this to his dead liberator and being like, dude, you wouldn't have been killed if you would have gone in with a method of subtlety, but instead you were Jerry. So now we get it that Plato was writing about Socrates 
but really Socrates was Jerry. Very meta. I think you're right. I think that is, I think you're right that the fact that it's, he's saying that, look, you can't just force education. You can't force people. You can't force facts and, and knowledge and, and true liberation. You can't force liberation. Yeah, you can't, you can't force that upon, you can't force education on anybody who doesn't want it. You have to trick them into thinking it, which is what he did to Glaucon. Which is the Socratic method. He did it to Gloucester, but he didn't do it to... That's what happened to Jerry. Jerry was forced. Mm. So the other thing you can think about, if Jerry is Socrates, it's just getting so confusing, but we love it, is that maybe it's not about the subtlety. Where Jerry went wrong, Jerry was able to be liberated by someone because it was only him. Jerry went and tried to liberate a group of people. And we know that masses are stubborn and they're too ignorant and stubborn to govern themselves. So maybe the issue is that it's not just that like, yeah, we, uh, we accept the reality we're given, but when it's, when it's in the masses, you can't liberate the masses. Maybe the hint to intellectuals is not only, yeah, you can approach it from a place of subtlety, but even if you can't, even if you need to physically drag them out of the cave, like they had to do with Jerry, you can only do that with an individual. You can't do it in groups. I think it's just it's way more difficult to do it in the masses because if they all come from the same point of belief, then majority wins, right? Opposed to the one crazy right. guy telling them that they're wrong. So the one definitive takeaway, no matter what, is that one cannot intellectually free themselves. They have to be liberated by another who has known the outside world. And the one thing that I want to bring up and talk about is after learning philosophy, you genuinely feel like a liberated person whose duty it is to liberate others. And so that's why I, this is what I realized after you shared why you love the allegory of the cave so much, why I was so drawn to it and why I felt like that was the one thing that actually drew me into philosophy, even though I had learned things beforehand, was the fact that I think at this point, after hearing this, I almost felt... I had words to put towards the feelings of like, oh, I'm one of the liberated now. It was almost a thing of like acceptance of physically being drawn in. I'm one of the liberated. It sounds all fun and dandy. Liberated sounds very positive. Actually, it's almost a negative because it's like, shit. I have to go around and try and like change people slash liberate them, which is a really hard thing to do as we see here. But hey, I have a podcast now. I am reaching the masses. We're liberating everyone. Exactly. That's how you do it. Uh, that's why I love this one so much because it was the moment where I was like, oh my God, I'm liberated. But then it was like, <laughs> fuck, I'm the liberated. I'm Jerry. I think that's why Allegory of the Cape holds such a special place in my heart and also why I have a t-shirt for it um, that says survivor because I survived yeah. the cave. And I hope everyone in the cave right now listening can survive too and get out. Get out of there. You learn for yourself, but the, the liberation, the actual unshackling has to be done by others. And that's our jobs. I think you just, you feel like you, because you recognize when people talk fallaciously and you recognize when people are just like in such a state of ignorance and ah, like, oh, they think ignorance is bliss, but then you try to like prove them wrong, not because you want to be right, but because you know how it feels to be in their position and how much better it feels when you feel quote unquote like liberated. So I have a couple of things here in my notes that aren't, I don't, I can't really speak to them, but I think you can because you're in university and I am a, a girl on a gap year. Girl on a gap year. That sounds like a, oh my God, sounds like a fun little movie. Um, <laughs> it does. Coming of age. Coming of age, girl on a gap. Um, 
Um, so I have just a couple of things that I don't really know about in detail, but I feel like you might. So I have in my notes, it says here, the theory of forms relates to the shadows on the cave wall. And that the theory of forms suggests that things in the physical world are flawed reflections of perfect ideals such as justice and beauty. So what can you tell me about the theory of forms? Because that's all I know is those two notes. Okay, so just for a little um, bit of context, I'm not in philosophy in university, but I did take a philosophy class last semester, which was just reading Plato's Republic and Symposium. So we did study a lot on Allegory of the Cave. So I don't just think I'm smarter and I'm not, I don't know as much as other people do, but um, I I kind of know it in a bigger context, reading the entire Republic opposed to just one small section of one of the books. Basically with beauty, it's kind of like appearance versus reality. So objectively, I can look at a stranger and I can be like, wow, that person is beautiful. That person's attractive, right? But what I am seeing is their outside appearance. So it's like the prisoners in the cave only seeing the shadow. When Then when you go and you see the real form of beauty, it's not purely one's appearance because obviously looks fade. It's then it's the entire person. It's their soul. It's their thoughts. It's their beliefs. Beauty as a whole is something that we don't know. And basically he was trying to prove we can't understand beauty until we realize that beauty is not merely appearances. And a lot of people are in this state of ignorance where they will they will only see someone's outward appearance and perceive that to be inward beauty when it's in fact not. We see beauty like the prisoners see reality where we just see a small fraction of what beauty actually is. And then the thing with the forms, in, in the Republic, Plato has a lot of analogies and one is the form of the good. Yeah, so the form of the good is basically the true form of these reflections. There's this divided line, which is a really big thing that he always talks about, where it's a divided line between the intelligible world and the visible world. So the visible world is obviously the cave and the intelligible world is people who've gone through this process of liberation, enlightenment, and mostly philosophers um, is what he kind of refers to. People in the intelligible world can grasp the forms. For example, one of the really big ones was the sun and the sun is the form of the good because the reflection allows the shadows to be cast but that's not the sun the sun is not the shadow the sun is itself and you can only see that once you go into the intelligible world once you get out of the cave once you reach enlightenment so also the analogy of the sun is that the sun is wisdom and good and in the form of the good so jerry was blinded by the sun because he's never seen it before and it's kind of like being blinded by the truth or knowledge if you've never seen or heard reality blinded by the light wrapped up like a something another loner in the night very relatable exactly yeah thank you so much for that explanation that very much helps me and i do intend on getting more into the republic for myself and learning more about that later on this episode is a really good way to end off this kind of untitled epistemology introduction unit because that's kind of what i'm doing and it's a really good send-off into the next kind of unit which is basically metaphysics. Mans, thank you so much for joining me. The Allegory of the Cave is just as amazing as I remember it to be. Should we get tattoos of the Allegory of the Cave? Like of Jerry? Oh my God, that's a really good idea. I'm totally down for that. If anyone wants to come up with designs and tweet it at BotCopPod, feel free. (laughs) Please do. With that in mind, we have come to the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for having me. Is there anything you'd like to plug before we go? Man, I don't I don't know. I don't really I don't really much to plug. My Instagram is my name. Hey, do you want to take it off my hands? Do you want to come up with the ending syllogism? Wait, you have an ending and a beginning syllogism? Yes, I have a I have a syllogism to start That's and a syllogism so to end. I've shot myself in the foot. We have to get over it. You really did. Okay. 
Oh, this is so much pressure. If A, Jerry is staring at the sun, and B, staring at the sun causes blindness, then C, Jerry should seriously think about going to see an eye doctor. Good one. Those are called ophthalmologists. Excuse me, class. <laughs> class. 